0: Show of hands, 2015 was one of the hardest years of your life. Yeah. So today's sermon is entitled Good Riddance 2015. That's what today's t- Simon, uh, sermon is entitled. It's 2015. Maybe not for all of you. Just a disclaimer. Maybe some of you had the best year of your life. Praise God that, that you you know knew things and all that good stuff, and we're all real happy for you. But for the other 99% of us, 2015 was really hard. Um, there was good things. Don't get me wrong, but there was a lot of heartache, a lot of trial, a lot of tribulation. you know, Month after month, seemingly just, just endless pain. Maybe not physical pain, but emotional pain, or maybe spiritual pain, or, or just, just pain in general. And so we want to say goodbye to 2015. Give it a, a proper send-off. Give it the old right foot of fellowship and just say goodbye 2015 and embrace 2016. But here's what we're in danger of doing if we just have that mentality. I mean we have that mentality but we're going to couple it with another mentality that what has happened in 2015 was for our good. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we're still feeling the effects of the pain, it is for our good. The Bible's clear, I believe it's Romans 8 and 28, that all things will be used for the good of those who love the Lord. I'm paraphrasing, look it up, write it down in your notebook that you should have with you. But everything, if you love the Lord, if you are a Christian, then all things that come to you will somehow be for your good, will lead you to worship Jesus, will lead you to grow stronger in your faith. God is good like that, amen? Amen. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from Mr. Lewis is this: "Experience, that most brutal, brutal of teachers, but you learn, my God, do you learn? You know, if you if you ever read anything about C.S. Lewis, you know his wife died. They weren't married very long. They got married in later years, so they had a very short, brief time with one another, and he struggled with depression and things like that as a result. Um, but he saw what the Bible teaches us, and what I hope." Is the message that you hear today that no matter how brutal the experience God flips that around and uses it for our good and it's not a big secret it's not a big mystery it's not a plan or a or a formula to make that happen it's a promise a promise does not rely upon your formula or your ingredients to make it come about if it's a promise from the Lord then it will come about however he sees fit that's where our trust comes in that's where our faith comes in turn to Psalm 119 verse 71 as you're turning there Psalm 119 I could have thrown a dart at a board full of the verses from that and pulled out a thousand things to preach about Psalm 119 is 176 verses long that Psalm in and of itself is bigger than some of the whole books of the Bible you find in the Old and New Testament more verses more words than some of the other books that you find we don't know who wrote psalm 119 it's believed that it was king david um there's even a, a sort of a jewish folklore that this was how uh, this particular psalm was how david taught solomon uh not just his alphabet his hebrew alphabet but the quote-unquote hebrew alphabet for life or for spiritual life Somewhat psalm 119 is a series of stanzas and and and, and forms uh that it's an acrostic poem what that means is your first eight verses all start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The very first word of every line of every verse starts with the same letter from the, same, from the Hebrew alphabet. And then the, the writer progresses throughout the rest of the, po- the poem or the psalm in that same manner. So for us it would be like starting every word with every you know – first eight verses with A, then B, then C. And it's this beautiful psalm all about God's word. Out of the 176 verses, I think 175 – Mention God's Word uh, his statutes his law his ways his promises things that were spoken by and and given to us through the Lord this man is in love with God's Word I would encourage you this week uh, challenge you even to read Psalm 119 every day this week it is a big chunk of scripture uh, but it'll take you maybe 10 minutes I mean if you're an average speed reader uh, if you're a little slower like me maybe 15 so carve out a chunk of your day and just read Psalm 119 and and be and be and marvel like I do when I read it and say man this guy just loves God's words so much he wants to please the Lord and he wants to commune with the Lord through what the Lord has spoken Psalm 119 verse 71 says this it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes The NLT, that was the English Standard Version. The New Living Translation says, My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. And the Message Bible, which I don't normally preach out of, um, it's, it's it's a much looser translation, not as good for preaching as it is for daily devotional type stuff. My troubles turned out all for the best. They forced me to learn from your textbook. Let me ask you this. The writer of Psalm one hundred nineteen, verse seventy one says, It was good for me to be afflicted. That's a very hard sentence to swallow, isn't it? Now, what if what if today the Lord asks you to do something? Whether it be through his word, through his Holy Spirit, you know, you just in some way you have determined and deciphered and and um discerned that this is from the Lord, and he has asked you to do something that you think is too much. What would you do? What if he told you that there was some aspect of your life um, that you should stop or start right now? What if, you know, I think about men and women who go to places uh, like Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Iran to preach the gospel. Would that be too much today? What if the Lord said, hey, just when you go home today, go next door and start talking to your neighbor. As awkward and as weird as that might be, go do it. What if the Lord said, you know what? You know that money you have set aside for this? Give it to this person or this group or this organization. Would you do it? See, most of us are comfortable enough with a little bit of you know, rousing, a little bit of uh, pushing around. Like, okay, I'll be stretched a little. But what if God just stretches you to the point where you think you're going to snap? Would you still say yes? Would you still go? Now, this is all hypothetical. We could say all day, oh, sure, I'd go. Because it's not really a threat right this second. Or it's not really in front of us. We're not really being confronted by it. But what we're going to talk about now is affliction. Because the writer says it was good for me to be afflicted. That sounds weird. It was good to me, good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to go through pain. Now, I don't want to belittle anybody's suffering or pain here today. I would, I would say the same thing. It was good for you to go through the affliction that you've gone through in 2015. As I look back at 2015, I mean, there was there was good things, but the things that were bad, the things that went wrong, the things that didn't go my way, the things that were trials, you know, I look back at them now that I've gone through them with a sense of joy. I say, you know what? A, I survived. B, this thing wasn't big enough to take me down because I've got the Lord in me and see God's going to do something great with that. Whatever whatever he's going to do, I know he's going to do something great. I can look back and say, you know, what? it was good for me to be afflicted. But not just to the end of being afflicted. Men like Martin Luther thought before, you know, the great Protestant Reformation, he thought one of the things he had to do to make himself right before God with his sin was to to beat himself and to torture his body. He would eat Things that would make his stomach turn and and, you know garbage and crud like that he would afflict himself with you know uh, just hurt himself to show the Lord that he was repentant to show the Lord "Oh, I'm so sorry for what I've done he realized he was a sinner he realized that he wasn't right before God and had to pay somehow for this sin until one day he actually read the Bible and learned oh it's by grace through faith that we are saved he realized that all this beating and torturing of himself was pointless. He'd go and he'd lay out in the wintertime and lay outside in like sub-freezing weather to show his devotion to God. He, he suffered through things like frostbite and different things just, just because he wanted to make things right with the Lord. Now the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe, maybe you're not a sinner and maybe this doesn't apply to you. Maybe you're perfect. Maybe you've never lied. Maybe you've never cheated. Maybe you've never stolen anything. Maybe you've never murdered anybody with your thoughts. Maybe you've never committed an adulterous act with your thoughts or your actions. Maybe you've never dishonored your mother or father. Maybe you've never held another God higher than the God of all creation. Maybe that's you, and so maybe this message doesn't apply to you. Okay. Um, I look around the room. If that's your claim, I would really like to talk to you about that. For the rest of us, we understand, man, I've done all those things, and I've done them spectacularly. (laughs) I've done them with flair and gusto. I have committed sins when I didn't even realize I was committing them. I got done. I was like, oh, wait, that was not right. I should not have done that. See, the Bible says we're sinners, and we need to be made right with God. That's where Jesus steps in for us. The wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on us is now poured out upon Jesus and And he suffers, he's afflicted for us for our wounds for for our trans or excuse me his wounds for our transgressions, his stripes for our sin and our iniquity. anybody ever read the book of Job? Book of Job's a hard book to read. It's considered uh Hebrew poetry. It's like forty chapters long and and honestly, the first two chapters are really good for me. First two chapters are really good, last two chapters are really good the thirty six in between it's like, huh. What happens is, in those 36 chapters, is, if you have, is that you have Job, and he's been afflicted. He's he's covered in boils. He's lost everything, including his children. His wife is like, just curse God and die, so you know she's not really a help right now. And he has these three friends that come along, and they start telling him, well, you must have done something wrong, Job. You know God blesses the good, and the bad people he punishes. And you're being punished, so you must be bad. You did something. At the beginning of the Bible, those first two chapters says that Job was a pretty upstanding guy. Make sacrifices for his kids just in case they sinned. He was he a was pretty blameless guy. Not perfect, still needing Jesus just like the rest of us, but man, better than a lot of us. And he was chosen for this path, this path of affliction for a reason. In the first two chapters, Job says two things that are just amazing to me. Just, I, I don't know where it came from other than the Lord for him to say what he said in that time. After the first round of affliction, which is him losing um, basically all his possessions and all of his children. He says this in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Verse 21 says, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Rather than crying out, why? Where's all my stuff? I don't deserve this. You know, I'm better than most people. Why aren't you doing it to those people? You know, why am I going through this? It's, man, this is how I came into this world. This is how I will leave this world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And and the next verse says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So his reaction is a good reaction. Then Satan goes before God again, accuses Job, and says, you know, Job only loves you because you have given him good health. He's not afflicted, so he praises you. Of course he would. Why wouldn't you? But you take that away from him, and he will curse you to your face. God says, okay, just don't take his life. Job is a very complicated, very wonderful, deep, mysterious, awesome book to read. So Satan afflicts his body, covers him, in boils and sores. Boils and sores are like the worst. I know of people who, uh, I know one particular guy, this was in California, he had a son who died from a boil. He got an infected hair follicle on his hand, turned into a boil. The infection got into his bloodstream, he went septic, he died. Job's body covered with these things. And the time where he needs his wife the most, she abandons him. He's got no money to, to draw on, his children are all gone covered afflicted crushed here's what he says in this instance his wife said to him do you not uh, do you still hold fast to your integrity curse god and die verse 10 says but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women uh, as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from god and shall we not receive evil in all this job did not sin with his lips the evil here, the word's better translated as a disaster uh, or suffering. It's not evil in the sense of the word that we would define evil. It's not like God's doling, you know, God is putting evil upon you right now. That's not what the Bible is saying. Um, but Job has this interesting point. We're going to take the good from God, but when he disciplines us, when he afflicts us, we're going to turn our back on him? We're going to be fair-weather friends when God's doing what we want. Yay, Jesus. But but the minute things go wrong, as as drastic as it might be, we're just going to turn our backs on him. And again it says Job didn't sin with his lips. What he said was not wrong. The Bible's pretty clear. When you sin, God will tell you. Like he will show you somehow what you're doing is wrong. And here, Job does not Job does not sin. So Back to the question, if you were presented with Job's affliction, what would you do? Would you have that kind of integrity? Would you have that kind of resolve to say, you know what? The Lord is still good. Would you still worship? Because I know, just from being the pastor here, there are some of us who have been through nothing like this, and we're ready to turn our backs on God. I know for me personally, I've gone through something that has been nothing like this, and I've questioned my faith. I was like, my goodness, why? why? I, I did not respond like Job did. I responded in my own fleshy way. How would you respond? Now, before you answer that question, we need to clarify something. What is affliction? Because some of you might be thinking, you know, like Martin Luther did, I've got I've to go through pain and torture to be pleasing to God. And that's the furthest thing from the truth that is a works mentality that means you know i please god if i do i will be saved uh, if i just do these certain things or if i uh, if i afflict myself in this way then god will find me pleasing i think you know this is sort of a, my theory but i I, theory, I theorize that some people like self affliction because it's a sense of self control if you can control the affliction there's no surprise i know it's going to happen But self-affliction is not what God has called us to. But there are times where we do go through what the Bible calls affliction. Now, what is affliction? Being brought low, being humbled, being disciplined. It's not judgment. It's not punishment. It's not God being mad at you. It's not God abandoning you or or forsaking you. These are not the affliction that the Bible is talking about. Affliction is, is being humbled for whatever reason, being brought low and being disciplined. Hebrews chapter 12, I believe it is, says that God disciplines his children because he loves them. That even earthly fathers do that. I mean, when your kids act up, or when you had your kids and they did act up, I mean, wouldn't you discipline them? Something would happen. Maybe there'd be a spanking, maybe there'd be a timeout, maybe there'd be something taken away, a privilege or something, um, and you would show them that their actions were not compatible with your statutes. Your law for them had been broken, thus there are consequences. The discipline was meant not to hurt them, but to cause them to see, oh yeah, that's not right, I've got to change my actions, my my actions come with consequences. As a side note, your sin will always have consequences. Meaning, when you commit a sin, someone will get hurt somewhere. It will be you and somebody else. You know you commit adultery you're gonna hurt yourself you're gonna hurt the person you had adultery with you're gonna hurt your spouse you're gonna hurt your kids you're gonna hurt your family you Steal from your job. You're gonna hurt yourself when you get caught. Eventually you're gonna hurt the company You're gonna hurt the employees that are affected by it and you're just gonna hurt you know you're gonna hurt your own family when you get in trouble When you lie you hurt people when you dishonor God you hurt people you always hurt somebody with your sin There will always be consequences for your sinful actions. They may not be immediate, which is kind of the thing that kind of lulls us into that sense of security. But it will come in some way, shape, or form. But going back to affliction, when the writer of Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted. He's saying it was good for me to be brought low. It was good for me to suffer for the name of God. It was good for me to go through trials. That was not punishment, that was not judgment, but rather God's way of changing us. Now, here's what most people won't tell you. The pain is still the same, right? I mean, pain is pain. And whether you put the discipline title on it or the judgment title on it, it hurts the same. I mean, the actual pain you feel in the midst of it, yes, will feel the same, but there will be a different purpose. Self-affliction, judgment, and 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 uh, just overall uh, forsaking, that's got one uh, flavor to it, if you will, or flair to it. But discipline is meant to make you stronger and better and bigger, to be used to do more in the kingdom of God. There's a purpose for it. When, when the writer of Psalm 119 says it was good for me to be afflicted, that's because there was a purpose behind it. When I say it was good for you to be afflicted in twenty fifteen, that's because God's going to give a purpose to that pain, whatever it was. Hebrews twelve and seven says it was for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, that is, the the earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, that's the Lord, for our good that we might share in his holiness. For uh, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Being afflicted is being humbled, brought low, and overall that's affliction. Here's the thing about affliction it draws us closer to the Lord than anything else. You might say, God, give me this, and then I will glorify you, and I will love you, and all this other business, but that's what like a five year old would say, right? Give me my toy, I'll give you the love, or give me my thing, and I'll you know, I'll devote myself to you. But we follow the one that's called the suffering servant. Turn to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is the chapter on the suffering servant. It's this picture some, I believe it's like 700 years before Jesus actually walked the earth. It's this glimpse into the future that, that Isaiah has of this suffering servant. This one who would come uh, in the name of God to take the sins and the iniquities of the people. Isaiah 53 and 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The purpose of your affliction is not just that you would suffer, not just to test you to see how strong you are, because at some point you should break in there. There should be a breaking, a good godly breaking. The purpose is to know Jesus. When the writer says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might know your statutes, so that I might know your word, so I might not know you better, who is the word? Jesus. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word is God and the word became flesh I believe in chapter he dropped down like 14 something like that and the word became flesh and dwelt among us it's Jesus the word of God is beautiful and powerful and amazing because it tells us of Jesus it shows us Jesus when Jesus was resurrected he met with his disciples He went and says that from the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets, he told them how everything was about him. All these verses in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. They all showed that he would be coming. Not just just as a king who was ruling and powerful and military type of political power, but this suffering servant who would come and change the world by taking the sin that the people had committed and extending to them grace through their faith. Now, we have to differentiate here between knowing the Word and knowing the Word. That right, sounds weird, but if you got a notebook, get to work. Here we go. Some think that Bible memorization is the same as knowing the Word of God. Bible memorization is a great tool because there's going to be times where you're off by yourself, you don't have a Bible, and you just, you just need the Lord. And knowing the Scriptures, having a few that are memorized, things like Romans 8 and 1 that says um, – uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Things like that. Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. That's the extent of my Bible memorization. You know, I got that's about all the verses I have. In, th- in case you're thinking I'm I'm trying to throw them out there to impress you, no, I've got like two or three. That's about it. Out of the 700,000, I got one or two paraphrased, okay? Um, but some people think that that memorization is the same as the word becoming a part of you. Let me give you two examples that show that that is absolutely not true. Bible memorization is a good tool. You can utilize it, but it's not the end all of why we read the scriptures. Okay? So number one, Matthew 4 and 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Who's saying that? Satan! Satan is saying that. Satan is saying that as he is tempting Jesus in the wilderness – Satan Satan can quote scriptures better than you. He knows what the Word of God says. He can share things with you all the time. What does he do here, though? He just twists it and misconstrues it and uses it to manipulate somebody. So when you watch or hear or listen to some preacher, including myself, and and you think, that doesn't sound... i got to go back to the Word. you got to make sure that just because somebody can quote the scriptures, that they know what they actually mean. That God somehow was in that. They haven't just memorized something. That it's not just a script, but they actually know what God intends for you to know through that word. Because Satan can, Satan can quote all day long. Let me give you the next example. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Who said that? The demons. Very good. All right, don't be shy. Answer. The demons. The demons said, hey... There's a time coming where you can afflict us or where you can punish us, but this isn't that time. How do they know that? Because they know the Scriptures. Because they, they were once in the presence of God. They have an insight to what God is doing and the plan that he has. So they know when they're in the – you know Jesus has just cast out demons from these two men. Here's the demons responding. It's not the time yet. How do they know the time? There are lots of people on TV. Oh, it's the time. It's the time. It's the time. The demons know the time. It doesn't make them Christians. It doesn't make them scholars. It doesn't make them students of the word. So we have to be able to say, you know what, knowing times, memorizing scriptures is good. But it can be used in a faulty way to give us a false sense of security. Knowing the scriptures, memorizing them, and then knowing the times doesn't make you a Christian just in the same way that Satan and the demons aren't Christians because they know those things. What we're talking about here is the same type of relationship a wife would have with a husband or a husband with a wife, an intimacy that is personal yet public, an intimacy that isn't hidden, you're not ashamed of, an intimacy that births in you the deepest sense of joy that Satan and the demons and the world, even though they're going to try really hard, they can't take away from you. 2015 was really hard. Lots of bad news, but the bad news didn't take the joy. Because at the end of the day, I could go back, I can go back to God's word and say, you know what, Lord, but you are still good. And you will still use this. And you will still change me. And you will make me stronger through this. So that, that joy that I have is not based on temporal things. It's based on something eternal. Something that the world can't take. You are meant to know Jesus. Is he mysterious in a sense? Yeah, we don't know everything about Jesus. We know as much as we could possibly know and then some. Because there's only so much we can take it in our little heads about Jesus. Like I still, I'm walking to to church this morning and I'm seeing the puddles thinking, how in the world did he walk on water? Like I can't even walk on this puddle and he walked on water. Like, I can't explain that. I don't know if anybody who's ever done that, aside from Jesus and Peter for the few steps that he did. Oh, it's by faith. Yeah, well, it must have been some kind of crazy faith because he did it, like, easily. He's like, just oh, I'm just taking a stroll out on the ocean. What? The feeding of the 5,000? Like, I'm just going to take these loaves and fishes and just feed everybody and have tons of leftovers? Like, how'd you do that? That's amazing. There's just things we can't explain about Jesus. How are you three in one? You know, the whole Trinity, your God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three but one, distinct but one. It's like, ah, my, the little head is just going to explode trying to think of all these things and figuring them out. But God has given us everything we need to live by faith. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That you are greatly loved by the Lord. The God who created you has, re, has done everything to redeem you and purchase you back from sin, Satan, and death that life with Christ is infinitely, I don't want to say better, it is better. Um, it's not pain-free, it's not trial-free, but man, when you have that sense of joy that no one can take away, it makes you look at life completely different. When you know that Jesus is not just—you know not just your buddy on your side, he's not just that guy backing you up, but he's the one leading you as well, that's when life changes. And you might be asking yourself, how do, I, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if that's happened to me? I'll give you an example. Acts 5 and 39. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the guys are preaching the gospel of Jesus. Uh, they're in places like the temple courts. And they're just preaching everywhere they can. Right? They saw Jesus come back to life. So for them, life is completely different. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going out to preach the gospel. Well, their gospel directly affects temple worship. And for the people in the temple who, who served Yahweh, they thought, well, they're preaching another god. That's a big no-no. Got to stop it. So they take them. They arrest these guys, and they get put in jail. I've never been put in jail for preaching. Peter, James, John, the disciples, they did. People today still get imprisoned and sometimes killed for their faith. So these guys are sitting in jail, and while they're sitting in jail, the leaders of the B get together and they're like, what are we going to do about this? They, they won't be quiet. We keep telling them, stop preaching about Jesus. And they just keep preaching all the more. And this man, Gamaliel, stands up and says, look, um, if it's not of God, it's going to fail. If they're just, you know, here's an example of this guy who said he stood for the Lord, and then there was a fight, and he was gone, and nothing came of it. And this other guy, same thing, talked a big game, but, you know, he, he failed as well. And so if it's not of God, it's going to fail eventually. But it is if it is of God. And there's really only one of two scenarios, it is or it's not. If it is from God, you're fighting God himself. And so the council's like, "Yeah, that's pretty good logic." Okay. And here's where we pick up the story. Here's where the verse comes in, uh, verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Okay, we'll stop fighting them. Let's just beat them and let them go. How, what's their, What would your your response be there? You go to jail. You got arrested. You're just preaching the gospel. You're not hurting anybody. Jesus loves you, died for your sins, wants to reconcile. Hey, you got to stop doing that. We're putting you in jail. Now we're going to beat you. Keep going and stop talking about Jesus. What would you do? What would your natural reaction be? I I'll tell you the truth. I'd be a little hesitant. To bring up the name of Jesus again. Uh, especially if those wounds are still fresh, the, the beating is still fresh. Oh, last time I said something about Jesus, it didn't end so well. So maybe I gotta be a little more tactful this time. Maybe I gotta just be quiet this one time. You know what? They're their own person. <laughs> they, they'll stand before God. They don't need me to preach the gospel to them because I just wanna be alive. Here's their reaction. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They got beat. They were told, don't preach anymore. So they said, okay, we'll just preach more than that. And we got beat. Wow, just like Jesus got beat. You know, the way he got flogged, we got flogged too. We've been counted worthy to suffer just like Jesus. To them, it was like a badge of honor. Wow. The Lord would look upon me and see me as worthy to suffer in this way. That this affliction would cause them to grow closer to Jesus. If you want to know, if you want to measure, have a, a litmus test of where you're at in Christ, check your responses to trials. How do you respond? Do you run to a bottle? Do you run to sex? Do you run to pornography? Do you run to something like your job and just work all the time? I mean, where do you run to? Do you run to a family member or a spiritual guru? Who do you go to? Do you go to Jesus? That's the proper response. Do you worship like Job did? That's the proper response. Do you rejoice because you know that those trials will bring you closer to Jesus? Hey, you're following Christ. That's the supernatural reaction that should occur in you. And if it's not... Then go back to square one. We repent. We say, Lord, something happened here. Create in me a new heart. That's what David said in the Psalms. And renew a right spirit within me. Change my heart. Change my spirit. Change, change everything about me so that I might respond in a way that your Holy Spirit is guiding and directing. Jesus was afflicted. We become afflicted to know Jesus more. 2015 was hard to, truth be told 2016 might even be harder it it might turn out to be the hardest year of your life i know every year what i like to pray is that this would be the best year of our lives and what i mean by that is that we would know jesus more than we ever have and so that's my prayer for you here today no matter what the world can throw at you i say 2016 might be harder because we know it's an election year there's gonna be commercials and ads and talking heads and just all kinds of endless banter and chatter about who and what and this and that. You know, just there's gonna be natural disasters, right? There's gonna be things that people who are corrupt and people get taken advantage of and we just see that it's happening in two thousand fifteen, it's probably gonna keep going in two thousand sixteen. My hope is that this is the year the Lord returns, amen? That this is the Lord this is the year that he comes back, redeems his church, takes us, makes the whole world new, amen? Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. I just hope that it does. Um, But my hope is that before that time happens, more and more people know Jesus. And you know, the Bible, when it comes to Christians, you don't find nominal Christians highlighted in the Bible. What I mean by that is people who just recite a prayer or say a script and then they go about their life as if nothing has ever changed. You don't meet people like that in the Bible. You read the Bible, people meet Jesus and it turns their life upside down. Read the, the story of the woman at the well. Read the ones who were healed of demonic depre- uh, oppression and possession. Read the ones who were lepers, who were cleansed. Read the ones who were dead and then came alive. Read about the ones who were fed uh, by, the, by the fishes and loaves. Read about Paul in the book of Acts and the epistles that he, he wrote. See, their, see his life changed as a result of being Jesus. If your life has not changed, you've met Jesus, but your life hasn't changed, I would just argue that maybe you haven't met Jesus. If no change has taken place in your heart or in your mind, I'm not talking about, you know, I met Jesus and I stopped smoking. That's a good thing. Stop smoking. That's good. But but non-Christians do that all the time. It's more than that. It's not something you can do. It's just something that you put your faith into. And so I pray that in 2016, your faith would increase because of the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to pray for you. Again, this Thursday be here to pray with us as we ring in the new year. We'll worship, we'll sing songs, we'll have fun, there'll be coffee, but it'll be a time of of recommitment, rededication, and looking forward through Jesus to 2016. Romans chapter 15, this will be our closing verse. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Your affliction is not meant to push you away from Jesus or to destroy you. It's meant to draw you nearer because you are children of God. If you have put your faith in Jesus then you are now a child of God. Let's pray. Jesus, all of us in this room have been afflicted in this past year, some way, somehow. Um, and it's been hard. We're not going to lie, Lord. It's been some of the toughest, toughest things we've had to go through. Just, just pain upon pain, and seemingly no end to it. You know, just because the calendar's flipping, Lord, we don't have a lot of evidence that things are going to change for the good. But Father, I thank you tonight, or I thank you this morning, that we have hope your word has given us not just instruction but encouragement that our affliction draws us closer to you and Satan might use it to push us away and the world might say look there that means there's no God but but we look through your word and we see Jesus we see that your very son was not exempt from affliction Your word says that he was disciplined, that he was raised up. And then one day he did take on the sins of the world. He took my sins and our sins and the world's sins and in love took them to the cross and was crucified for them. Lord, he shed his blood so that we could be washed clean, not just have a a stay of execution or to be pardoned, Lord, but but to have our sins paid for. The debt that we incurred to you is now gone. And Father, I'm praying that that would be a great sense of relief to your people today. We understand debt. And this sin debt that we had was more crushing than any debt that we could have. And you paid it for us. But more than that, you've now created this life for us to live. You have a path set before us to walk and there's going to be times of affliction and in 2016 when those times come Lord help us to be ready help us to be like Job who who, we don't sin with our lips we don't say anything wrong we just understand that you give and you take away that there are times where you bring good and there are times where you bring suffering and affliction so that we might grow in you Father I haven't been a Christian that long maybe just some 15-20 years but I've seen you use suffering and affliction and discipline to draw your saints closer to you. So, Father, I pray that for 2016, it would be the greatest year of our lives. Because we have met met the risen Savior, we have been filled with the joy that the world and Satan cannot steal from us. Though the world might take everything from us, they can't take you. And because we have you, we still have everything. Clothes, money, time, everything, temporal. Comes, goes, blessed be the name of the Lord. But you, you endure forever. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and may South Bay Chapel be a place where we meet the risen Savior over and over and over again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.